Before we get started, I just want to make a quick note. I've never done anything like this before. You know, I don't have a bunch of podcasts. I've never done anything like this before. And um, if you're listening, you know, if you're one of the people who listened to this very early, and hopefully the show will grow, and maybe me along with it, but uh, I don't know, it's just, it's great to have you along for the ride. So uh, let's get started. Basecamp is both a company and a product. That's Jason Fried talking, founder and CEO of Basecamp. I'll explain the product because we actually make a few different products. Uh, Basecamp as a product is a project management and team collaboration tool. So it's a place to keep all your internal communications, manage all your projects, all your tasks, schedules, files, discussions, deliverables, all that kind of stuff all in one place. And then um, also communicate with your team and or external people, clients, contractors, that sort of thing, all in one place. And it's all unified in that you don't need to use four or five or six separate products. It's just one product that does all the things that every company and team needs to do. Um, We also make a product called Hey. But we'll get to that later. Those are the two products we make, and the company itself is called Basecamp. But the story behind it really speaks to the sense of innovation they have. Yeah, so Basecamp... um, was something we launched to scratch an itch that we had. We um, were a website design company at the time, back in the um, late 90s. And we were getting busier and busier managing client projects and picking up more work. And we were just sort of a bit scattered, dropping the ball, you know, like didn't really know what anyone was working on. We were using email and messaging at the time. And it was just kind of a mess. Um, And we needed to clean things up and get a bit more organized and get on top of things uh, and and feel like we knew what we were doing. Um, so we built this tool internally, initially. Um, it didn't have a name, but it was what became Basecamp. And we started using it with many of our clients. And they kept saying, what is this thing that you're using? Because this is great. We have our own projects and our own challenges. Like, Can we use this? And we kept saying, you know, initially, no, it's just this thing we made for ourselves. It's not a product or anything like that. But enough people asked and we, we had a sense that there was something to this. And so we turned it into a product and gave it some prices and polished it up and finished it up and put it on the market in February of 2004. And um, it sort of took off pretty quickly, actually. Uh, about a year later, it was generating more revenue for us than our website design work. So we stopped doing website design and have been doing software ever since. We've made a bunch of products since then, but Basecamp has always been our our number one product. Basecamp isn't Google, but that doesn't mean they don't have reach. Tens of thousands of paying customers for Basecamp and tens of thousands of paying customers for Hey. So that's, um, these are all, you know, we have millions of individual users on Basecamp because a a customer of Basecamp, like a company that buys Basecamp might have a hundred users that use it, but we count them as one customer. Um, So it depends on how you, how you count different companies count in different ways, but uh, well over a hundred thousand on both products total. When I asked how Basecamp sets itself apart from its competitors, he said it was a little more complicated than that. It's different in in a lot of different ways because it's really situational. You know, so I would respond to someone differently depending on what problem they might have, what industry might they be in, or what are they struggling with. So it's kind of hard to answer in a general sense because 
so many different products do some of the same kinds of things, but the, the nuanced ways in which they do them is really the difference. And um, the, I would say that the, one of the differentiators with Basecamp, though, is that it's, it's an all-in-one product and that you know, a lot of small business owners don't have time to shop for software. They also don't want to. It's not fun. They're not interested in doing that. They're busy as hell with their own business. And if you want to piece together a bunch of separate products that do what Basecamp does, well, you'll need to buy Slack. You'll need to buy, let's call it Asana or Trello. You'll need to buy Google Docs. You'll need to buy some sort of calendaring thing. Um, you'll need to buy some other software. And before you know it, you've, had, you've bought five or six things and you've, you're trying to piece them together in a single system that's sort of integrated, sort of kind of. You're paying five different bills. You're onboarding people in five different places every time you hire a new employee. You're training them on five different interfaces. It sucks. It's a, it's a real hassle. So Basecamp is an all-in-one product that has chat built in and direct messaging built in and long form uh, like email style writing built in and to-dos built in and scheduling built in and file sharing built in and meeting replacement stuff built in. And it has it all in one place. So you always know where everything is. You don't have to jump back and forth between different products. You don't have to try to onboard people in different places. And it's just a much, much simpler, more straightforward approach than trying to build your own system. Now, some companies like building their own systems. They like having a lot of control over every little detail. And I can understand that. Um, we're probably not for them. Um, but for the majority of small business owners um, who don't want to deal with that stuff, um, we're definitely uh, right up there for them. So I would say the integrated, unified, all-in-one approach is quite a bit different than most tools that exist today. Basecamp has a shocking one-hour response time, which made me wonder about Jason's views on customer service. If you go to basecamp.com slash support, you can see our wait time. And right now it is about an hour. So you'll, you'll email us, you'll get back, you'll hear back from us from a real person in one hour with an answer. So, and sometimes that's, you know, 20 minutes and 30 minutes, it sort of depends on the demand. But um, yeah, we, we put this at the top because we've all been in a place. I'm, I'm in a place all the time where I, you know, I, I use Verizon for my cell phone. Like I, I, I can't, get an answer from Verizon within an hour, within a day often. And the answers I get aren't really typically very good. Or you try to email Google if you have a problem with Google Docs or something, you're never going to hear back from them, probably. Or you might, but it might be days. You just don't know. And it's really frustrating to pay for something and not feel like the company is actually there for you, that they're more interested in just selling you something and then letting you figure it out on your own versus selling you something and supporting you. And so this comes from just a, a place of, I think, just respect for, for your customers. And also what, what do you want to, what kind of experience would you want if you were a customer? And I'd want to be wowed by a company that got back to me within an hour and oftentimes within minutes, I, that would be like, Oh, I'm, I'm customer for life. I'm sold. Like you guys are there for me. This is fantastic. And that's the kind of experience we want to have. We want our customers to have. And, um, a lot of, a lot of our industry doesn't really invest in customer service. It's sort of an afterthought. It's sort of, sort of, kind of a loss for them. They they don't really want to put money into it or they try to automate a lot of things away and it's really frustrating. And we always want to make sure there's a human being there, um, a real human who speaks your language, who knows how to to uh, talk about the product and talk about situation you're in and um, you know be there for you. So that's just something I've always wanted. I want from the companies that I do business with and I think we respect our customers by by delivering that for them as well. Well, first of all, Google has revenues like what? 
billions and billions and billions and billions. So they have the money to invest in that if that's what they chose to do. It's a definitely a harder problem. Like they wouldn't necessarily have to provide customer support for free versions of Gmail, for example. But um, their support is, is pretty thin, even on paying versions of things. Um, so I, I, to me, this is more about a will th- than a way. Um, the money's there. They have an, they're enormously profitable businesses. And um, I think they could certainly do more than they do today. Um, but as you'll see with many companies, they, off, they outsource and offshore a lot of support. And it's, it, it's, it's seen as not worth it. They don't believe that it's worth it. They don't believe that it matters. Um, they will spend billions of dollars on this or that or whatever it might be. But as far as actually supporting their customers, I think they think that once they have a customer, they don't really have to keep the customer and that these things don't matter quite as much. So I don't know. It's a different problem. No question about it. It's a hard problem. Um, but I think Apple's done a particularly good job of this. Apple's a company that really does care about customer service and they do a really wonderful job of customer service. They care. Um, you know, different companies care about different things. And I think it signals it's, it's, it's the scale issue is definitely a harder problem, but so is building Google. I can't do that. Like, but you know, Building building their products at scale is very hard, but so is so is supporting customers, and they should decide what they want to do, and they're going to decide what they want to do, and they've decided what they want to do, and it's that's their choice. I'm not like suggesting they should do otherwise. I'm just saying we think that it's important that we take really good care of our customers, um, and with a hundred thousand customers, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. We have a really wonderful team. The customer service team at Basecamp is our largest team. We have more people in customer service than we have on design, that we have on engineering, that we have on operations, that we have in any other department. So we put our money where our mouth is in terms of helping our customers. And that's the decision that we made. And every company gets to make their own decisions about that. From the moment Basecamp launched as a the product until now, was there any either positive or negative, like, event or opportunity or defining moment as a company? Yeah, I think there, there are always uh, defining moments. And, and, and uh, you know, companies are just a, a collection of decisions and choices that are made all the time. Um, when we launched the business in, in uh, 99, we were a website design company. Then we shifted over to being a software company in 2005, basically. From that point on, we, we shipped a bunch of products. We shipped Basecamp in 2004, then Backpack in 2005, then Campfire in 2006, and High Rise in 2007. We built a variety of different job boards and some other products as well. And um, at some point, uh, we decided that we were going to go all in on Basecamp, um, that the other products that we built, we just couldn't really service them well enough. We couldn't improve them well enough with the company size that we wanted to keep. We wanted to stay as small as we possibly could which is a fundamental tenet of, of ours, which is let's keep this company as small as we can. Let's have as many customers as we can, um, but we don't want to just keep hiring a bunch of people. We want to keep it relatively small. And so with that, we had to decide to shift to just support one primary product, which was Basecamp. So we spun off a couple products, sold off a couple things, um, integrated a few things like Campfire, our chat tool became part of Basecamp. Um, and, and a variety of different things we've done there. And we've, we've, we've continued to support our old products, but we don't sell them to new customers, but we support them for existing customers. And that was a fundamental major change. We rode that for about six years or so until we decided to launch Hey. Um, and we launched Hey uh, in 2020. Um, 
And uh, that was um, a whole new thing for us to go back and do another product. So that was another fundamental uh, major, major change. Um, and there will be many, many more as we, as we move on. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that, uh, there are all sorts of things that you, you know, you can look back on and see these changes, but you don't necessarily know how big they're going to be or small they're going to be in the moment. You might have an idea, but it's really when you look back on stuff that you can figure out, oh, that was actually a really big decision or that was really a big decision or that had a big impact or that had a big impact. That was a, uh, inflection point this way or the other. Um, so yeah, there's, there's been a number for us. And I think when you've been, we've been around for 22 years, whenever you're around that long, you're going to have, you know, a handful of really big moments one way or the other. Um, and I expect to have many more of those as we continue to, to build the business and grow the business. In fact, like right now is a good example because we've decided recently that we want to get really ambitious again. Um, back in the day when we had four products or five products, we never ever thought about not making something new. If we had an idea, we would just make it. And then we kind of took a more conservative approach and then got focused just on one thing. And now that we've built Hay and we have Basecamp and the new version of Basecamp is, is on the way that we're finishing now. Um, and we have a bunch of new ideas for Hay and a couple other product ideas we might tackle. We're sort of rekindling our ambitions. And that's something that just happened in the past year. So and now, now we're, we've actually hired more people uh, in the last six months than we've ever hired in any six-month period ever in our history. So, you know, we're, we're in a new place again, and uh, we'll see where that takes us, and I'm sure there'll be other new places down the road. That reminded me about Basecamp's until the end of the internet policy, which basically states that every product that they make, even if it gets shut down, they'll continue supporting it for existing customers until it's technically impossible to do so. So it's a general value um, that, you know, we, we, we intend on being around for a long time. This is a statement about longevity. Um, but but the, the, um, the, uh, the other thing is that we were frustrated by our, by our industry, which tends to build things and then shut them down relatively quickly. Um, or companies get bought and then the product dies, you know, or a company dies, or, you know, Google will release something for free and get a few million people to use it, but it's not 10 million or 50 million or 100 million. So they just kind of shutter it and it goes away. We've seen this happen over and over and over and over in our industry. And we, we didn't want to be the company that contributes to that. We have shut down one product, which was sort of an experimental product, which we ran for a little bit called Basecamp Breeze, which was a group email tool that was... Um, a side project kind of, and sort of didn't really ever take off. And, and, um, that was, that was that, but over our 22 year history, everything else we've done, um, we've, we've maintained or, or sold, um, but the, it was sold to a company that maintained it. So it's, it's a really big deal for us to make sure that whatever we build sticks around, um, and that customers aren't left holding the bag. They aren't left with all their data in something that just dies or, you know, that goes away or, or get shut down without notice. So we, we just want to, you know, not be that company that does that. And um, um, I think it's, again, it's a matter of longevity. So if you're only planning on being around for a few years because your end goal is to sell the business or, or be acquired or whatever, then you don't really have a long-term view of keeping things alive and keeping things around for a long time, for a long term. We're an independent company, self-funded, been around for 22 years, would love to be around for another 22. And to do that, like it takes a different mindset. And also it takes it's it, 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 that mindset applies itself in different ways to decisions you make. 
So it's more about the long term. Let's make sure we're supporting products kind of forever um, versus just, hey, there's not going to be a forever because we're going to be, you know, gone in three years. So it's just it's a different take. And um, it could be um, it's a it's a it's a cost. It's it's difficult sometimes. Um, but we think it's it's the right thing to do. It feels like the right value to have. And so uh, that, that's what we've done. Next, I asked Jason a few questions about Hey, Basecamp's new innovative email service. When did it come out and was there a certain like launch type, waitlist or was it immediate? Yeah, um, 2020, middle of the year, I think it was June. Um, we had built up a, a waitlist. Um, we'd sort of been teasing the product. Um, I think we had a waitlist of maybe... Uh, it was like ten, it was like ten thousand or something initially, and then it actually after it started coming out and some people started getting access to it, it kind of blew up and we had about a hundred thousand people uh, on the wait list, um, and we just kind of rolled it out as as best we could. We eventually sent it out to everybody, but we, um, you know, part of the reason we had the wait list was you know there's always a little bit of a uh, a demand generator when, you know, there's a, there's a list, but also it was mostly actually a technical thing. Like an email service, we're not an email client. So basically, Hey, is not something that sits on top of Gmail or anything like that. This is a full email service on par with Gmail on par with outlook, you know, on par with these other systems where we're, we're doing the whole thing from top to bottom. And that's a really technical lift. It's a very difficult thing to do. And we wanted to make sure that our systems were ready to handle the demand. So we kind of wanted to, to, to dole it out slowly to make sure everything was working well before we let uh, everybody in. So the wait list, you know, did generate some demand, but really it was to make sure that our systems were solid and we didn't have any issues, which, which we didn't, which was nice. It blew up in part because we got in a big fight with Apple. Um, Apple uh, had let our app Hay into the app store um, and then we released an updated version of Hey with just some bug fixes, minor fixes. It was like version 1.02 or something like that. And they they banned us from the App Store temporarily because we didn't collect um, uh, subscription money through the in-app purchase system that they have, which which didn't seem like we needed to do that. But in the meantime, they 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 prevented us from posting updates, and we got no big big public battle with Apple about this. We didn't back down. We fought very hard. We made our case. The press picked the story up and became a huge, huge, huge story in the middle of 2020. Um, and that was ultimately very helpful for us because it got us in front of a lot of people. Um, and that's where that list just ballooned to you know 100,000 people. Um, and uh, we were all over the place, which is wonderful. And we eventually resolved it with Apple. Um, and uh, it, but anyway, it was a really important boost for us initially. It was it was not planned. It just sort of happened that way. I mean. Uh, I didn't want to go through that. It was a pretty scary uh, process to basically be a tiny company battling the world's largest company. Um, but it's what we did and what, what happened. And um, it was a good press for us in the end. Were there any concerns that it would end badly or Apple would take further action? Well, we felt like we had to do what we had to do there. And we didn't know how it was going to end. We had no idea. But we felt it was unjust and unfair what was happening. And Apple was using an uh, extensive amount of power that we felt was unwarranted. We had done everything we were supposed to do. We followed the path that we followed with Basecamp, which Apple has no problem with. We followed the path that dozens and dozens of other subscription-based services follow, which hasn't been a problem. 
Um, so we were caught off guard and surprised by this, but we weren't going to give in and give Apple 30% of our revenue, just not going to happen. So we fought and we stood our ground and we just were not going to give in. And we eventually found a certain degree of middle ground. Um, we'd communicated with Apple and Apple and the press was speaking to us and we were speaking to them in the press. We were speaking directly a little bit behind the scenes and eventually came up with something that, that they were comfortable with, which was offering a, um, a temporary use version of Hey that doesn't cost anything that's available in the App Store. If you have a paid subscription, you, you get to, of course, download the app and log in and use your account. But you can also download Hey from the App Store without an account and then get a free two-week temporary email address that you can use. But the problem, of course, is that Apple does not allow us to talk to our customers and tell them that they can upgrade their account or they can sign up in a different place. And this is still kind of a big problem with Apple. Um, there's been some changes to the App Store rules. And I think our battle with Apple helped move Apple a little bit in some, in some areas around developer relationships and whatnot, which is, which is a great outcome for not just us, but for all the independent developers out there that we were really fighting for. Because it's you know we're, we're ultimately just one company, but we think that the rules are just unfair, especially for smaller businesses. And so we were fighting for them too. And some changes happened, which is, which is great. It's still not where we think it should be. Um, but progress has a little bit of progress has been made and, and uh, we were able to come to a resolution and now we're in the app store and I've had no issues since. So it was, it was scary because if, if Apple continued to ban us from the app store, I mean, it's their app store, they can do whatever they want. There's not much you can do. Um, you know, that would have kind of killed that business line because you really can't have an email tool, um, on, on, on a major platform without, native app support. And um, if they would have prevented us from being in the app store, that would have probably really hurt. Hey, luckily, it, you know, we, it all worked out. Uh, but yeah, there were some scary moments, but it was also really invigorating and exciting. And it's really wonderful to stand for so many developers and so many people um, who'd been bullied by Apple and essentially pushed around by Apple in a way that, you know, these other companies, these smaller businesses, they didn't have the platform that we had to speak up and stand out. Um, and we had it, so we used it and, uh, I think it helped to uh, move the needle a bit for them too. So that was, that was good. I also inquired about the inspiration behind it as it's not every day. Someone just decides to reinvent email. Yeah, there was a number of specific frustrations. Um, basically, uh, email hadn't really been innovated on that much for about 16 years, which at the time, which is when Gmail had come out, Gmail had come out 16 years ago. And I remember I've been around. I remember getting my Gmail account and and loving it because it was such such a different approach and so new. Sixteen years goes by though, and 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 some of the bad stuff piles up, and and it's time for for someone else to come up with some new ideas. And so, hey, launched with about twenty five really unique ideas. Think some things that had never been done before, many things that had never been done before in email, and. Um, Many things that have still never been done outside of Hay. Hay is full of innovations and new ideas that 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 are still unparalleled. Um, and uh, we 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 put together this this collection of of ideas and things that we wanted to see in email, and no one else seemed to want to build that or do that. And so we went for it. Now, part of the problem is, or part of the reason it's hard is because you need to be at full service to do some of the things that we're doing. You need to be like completely vertically integrated. If you're just a client that lives on top of, let's say, Gmail, you can only really do what Gmail lets you do because you need to be backward compatible with Gmail. So if someone goes back to their Gmail account, all the stuff that you're doing in your app needs to kind of translate back to Gmail. 
we're doing so many things that nothing else does that we had to build our own thing from scratch all the way from the service level to the client level and client level on the web, client level on iOS, client level on Android, client level on Mac, desktop, Linux, and Windows. And so we had to kind of do a bunch of that stuff. Um, and because we had that ability to do that, though, we were able to do a bunch of things that no one else had really done before and, and still hasn't done. For example, um, with Hey, you have to give permission for people to email you, which is one of the big problems with email today is that anybody can email you. It used to be years ago that you'd only get emails from people who knew your email address. Well, now your email address is everywhere. So the first time somebody emails you and, hey, you get a chance to say, do you ever want to hear from this person? Yes or no. If no, you'll never hear from them again. They can email you a thousand times. You'll never hear from them. If you say yes, you'll hear from them. Um, certain emails go in certain places in Hey, and uh, Hey helps you set that up. So Hey doesn't automate things for you in a sense that Gmail automates things and puts things in different tabs and Gmail gets to make decisions about what it thinks is important to you and what you, you know, versus what you think is important to you. We're not fans of that. So we let you control where things go. There's a handful of workflows. Like for example, in Gmail or pretty much every email system other than, Hey, you look at an email, you want to get back to someone later. You don't have time to do it. So what do you do? You typically mark it as unread, which is a huge hack, but it's just what you do. So you don't lose track of it. Um, with, hey, there's an actual workflow, which is called reply later. You're like, I know I need to get back to this person. I know I need to get back to them later. I don't have time right now. So you market reply later. It goes into a very specific pile, like a literal pile at the bottom of your screen, which then you can knock down one at a time in a special reply mode that just puts all the emails you've marked reply later, stacks them up top to bottom and you can and with a little reply box next to each one. And on a single screen, you can knock out all these different replies without having to go back to your inbox and deal with all the other mess that's in there. There's all these little workflows that we've built into Hey that are very, very specific that really literally change the way email works in a very fundamental way and saves people a ton of time and attention um, and gives them control of their email again, which is um, a really different thing. It's a very, very different approach. Um, of course, it works with all other email systems because it's just email. But the features that it, that it has require us to do our own thing from scratch. So it's a long answer. But um, if, if you go to hey.com slash features, you can look at a bunch of the things that it does. And you'll see a lot of them are, are things you've never seen before in email. Were there concerns around pricing for the personal version? Yes. I mean, well, the, the one thing, it was never going to be free because we can't afford that. You know, Google can afford to give things away for free because they make tens of billions or, I don't know, hundreds of billions now. I'm not even sure what the, how much they make on, on advertising. So they, they can do a whole bunch of things that subsidize by advertising. We don't have an advertising business. We don't subsidize anything with anything. Our products have to, to kind of hold their own weight. And so to give away a free email service would just be a bad idea for us. Um, so we always knew it was going to be pay. Um, and we sort of landed on, on hundred bucks or 99 bucks a year as a number that felt about right to us. Um, it felt like, I mean, it would cover our, we have to look at the financial side of it. So like, can, can that work? You know, can we cover our costs there? Um, and you know, it feels like it's reasonable. Um, at a, that's about eight bucks ish a month. Um, and, um, you know, it's not for everybody. A lot of people wouldn't pay a penny for email. Um, mostly because they don't think email is worth anything because the email experience they've had is terrible. So I, I totally understand why they don't think it's worth anything. Um, but those who really value their time and their attention and their control and their communication and how they spend their days, 
um, for a lot of them, eight bucks a month ish seems like a steal um, in the amount of time that we save people. I mean, we're saving people literally hours and hours a month. Um, and, um, you know, for me, it probably saves me an hour or two a week, um, not having to go through emails I don't want to go through and, and to get into a flow when I want to respond to people without being in, interrupted or distracted. Like it's a significant, has a significant impact on the way I, I email now. And that saves me time. And my time is worth a lot more than eight bucks a month. Like, so, you know, but again, for those who don't want to spend anything and they go, well, Gmail's free and Yahoo's free. And, and it is, it is free. And, and if that's okay with you, then you should definitely, I mean, you have plenty of options. Um, but there's like, there's us, there's fast mail, there's proton mail. There might be a couple others, um, that are pay email services and, um, they're not for everyone. Um, but for, for, for the people they're for, they're, uh, they're quite good options, I think. And then it was on to the more internal atmosphere during the launch. It was, um, extremely exciting and also extremely stressful and exhausting. We'd never, ever launched a product that was so successful right off the bat. We'd never launched a product that had that much uh, demand right off the bat. Um, and that much enthusiasm right off the bat. It was a, it was a total shock, but I wouldn't say total shock. We were very comfortable and confident that we built something special and good, but you never know how well it's going to be received. So that was the shock is that it was so well received. Um, so there was a ton of enthusiasm and excitement and energy in the company, but because of that, um, because of the, the overwhelming demand and, and the, the situation with Apple and, um, that we were pulling long, long days and weekends, which is something we don't do. We, we typically work 40 hours a week, which is about an eight-hour day. Um, and it's typically fairly calm around here. It was not calm for you know the first few weeks and, and into maybe the first few months after the launch because it was so popular um, and so many questions. I remember there was thousands of... <laughs> We usually get about 500 uh, customer service emails a day, and there was like thousands and thousands coming in um, during this time. And you know, we weren't ready for that, and everyone had to sort of jump in on support and help. And it was a fun, exciting moment because everyone is pulled together around this one goal and, and trying to help people and service customers and answer questions around this thing that everybody seemed to really want. But it was exhausting, and I remember just being like physically and mentally exhausted for a while, and it took a while to recover from that. Um, we don't do this very often. As I said, this is something we had never really felt like this before. So it, it was exciting, but couldn't live that way for sure. I should also add, like, there was actually quite a bit of doubt internally initially before we launched the product, like as we were working on the product. Um, you know, there, there was, it was a very controversial product internally because, again, the notion of paying for email is not everyone's cup of tea. And um, the things we were doing were very unusual. Um, and, uh, even call, like the, we don't have an inbox in, Hey, we have what's called an M box, I M B O X instead of I N, which is weird. And there's, <laughs> I, I mean, I like it. Um, uh, but it was, it was one of those, like, why are we doing, why was this called inbox? Like, is this too cutesy or why, why are we, people aren't going to get it? Or there's a lot of questions about this stuff internally. And, um, and that's, that's cool. I like, I like that. I like the, um, the, the sort of edgy energy of something that's unusual and new. Um, that's kind of what I live for is building things that are unusual. I mean, we try, tend not to spend, doesn't seem like it's worth spending time 
on building something someone else has already built before, but just making it slightly better. Like I, I want to build things that are unique and original and interesting. Basecamp is unlike anything else that's on the market. Hey is unlike anything else that's on the market. We want to build the things that no one else would build. Um, that's not to say that they're the best things in the world. There's other wonderful products. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that there's nothing else like those two products. And that's the kind of stuff that we get really excited about. But it also comes with its own internal controversy and questions around, is this any good? Are people going to like this? Are people going to get this? Is this going to be worth it? Are people going to think it's worth it? Are people going to pay for it? And the answer is always, we don't know. We have no idea. Um, we can guess and we think so, but we have. To, that's why we have to build the thing to find out. And so we build it and ship it, and then the market, you know, tells the truth. So Basecamp is a fully remote company. Has it always been remote? And also, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's um, mostly always been remote. Um, the first four employees we had were all local, um, but. Um, after that, my my the, our fifth employee was who was turned out eventually to be my business partner David, um, was uh, was living in Denmark at the time, and I was in Chicago, and the rest of us were in Chicago. So from that moment on, from our fifth employee on in two thousand, I don't know whenever that was, one two thousand two something like that, um, we've been primarily remote. Um, and today, in fact, we have more employees outside of the United States than we do inside the United States for the first time. We just crossed that threshold recently. Um, so we're like really remote. Um, now we pay everybody the same as if they lived in San Francisco, which we don't even have an office there, but we pay 90th percentile salaries based on the San Francisco market, which is the highest market in our industry. So no matter where you live in the world, you're still going to be paid as if you lived in the highest price market in the United States in San Francisco for the tech world. So we're not, we don't have people outside the U.S. to save money. We have people outside the U.S. because there's wonderful people also outside the U.S. There's incredible people all over the world who do wonderful work. And we're in search of the best people we can find no matter where they are. We also have a lot of customers outside the U.S. So it's good to have overlap in different time zones and whatnot. Um, so that's, uh, so we're, we've become extremely remote. And then our, we had an office, we, we've had an office on and off during our, our lifetimes. And we had just had a 10-year lease in an office, which expired a couple years ago, and we didn't renew that. So we've been office-free for about a good what year and a half now. Maybe, no, two years. Um, and since COVID, of course, we, we haven't really even seen each other. Um, we're, we're about to do our first meetup in March, in-person meetup in March for, for almost, almost three years now, I think it's been. Um, so we, we, while we're remote, we used to bring people into a city into Chicago at least, uh, twice a year, we fly everybody in so they can hang out for a week and we can see each other and get to know each other and share a meal and share a smile, that sort of thing. But we haven't done that in a while, but we're about to start doing that again. So that'll be nice. Um, and, um, you know, my, my general feeling has just been like great people are everywhere around the world. It seems ridiculous to limit yourself to just like the best people you can find within 30 miles of where you live or something like that. Now, Different businesses have different requirements. If you're a retail business and you need people to be at a store or a restaurant, different story. But we're a software business. You don't need people to be physically together. Um, so, um, you know, that's how that works out for us. What's the difference between remote working in a pandemic as opposed to uh, without? It's hard. Um, it's harder for sure. 
what we're living through or what we've been living through is not really remote work as much as it's been pandemic work, which really is a difference. With remote work, people would typically even be able to go to like, even if they didn't have an office, they'd go to a co-working space, they'd see other human beings, they'd make, see their co-workers occasionally, you know, that kind of thing. Like there's been none of that. People have sort of been locked in their homes or in their second bedrooms if they have one or in their in their only bedroom if they have, if they live in a studio or whatever, or maybe in a walk-in closet. You know, it's very hard, especially people who have kids. I mean, kids were home for school for a while. It's just, it's been incredibly difficult. Um, for a lot of people just to find, carve out some quiet space to do anything. So that's hard. Remote working is not anywhere near as hard as it's actually been over the past two or three years. Um, so it's, it's but but remote working is, is a different way to work. It's not just working far away from other people. It's actually a very different way to work. It's more, in our opinion, more asynchronous. It's more about writing things up in long form. It's actually about less about real-time communication. It's more about taking stock of where people are um, and giving people a lot more freedom and flexibility and trust and recognizing that not everyone's in the same time zone. So you can't keep pulling people back into real-time conversations all the time. Otherwise, people are going to end up working longer hours. You don't want to be in a reactionary place where everyone's just responding to real-time stuff all the time. It's very difficult to work that way remotely. So it's definitely a calmer, more asynchronous style of work um, and uh, a more trustworthy form of work where you're looking more at the work that's being done over time versus trying to evaluate people and ask what they're doing all the time or looking at their presence and where are they and that sort of thing. Um, so it's a very, very different um, kind of thing. But yeah, the last few years have been the hardest version of remote work you could ever have, which, which hopefully will give people hope if they choose to continue to work remotely once things get a bit back more to normal. Um, that they'll find that remote working is quite a bit easier than they thought it was. And they'll have had experience having doing it the hardest way. It's almost like if you were to go jogging with 20-pound ankle weights on, and then one day someone tells you you don't have to wear those anymore, you're still jogging, still going the same distance, but now it's just a whole lot easier. I think that's what it's going to feel like when the pandemic finally clears, if that ever, you know, well, it will happen, but whenever that happens and people are still working remotely, they'll, they'll see it's much easier. When you still get to see your... Your, your your coworkers here and there, and or you get to get out of the house and go to other places to work here and there. That's a, a, a much nicer feeling, I think. What problem in the tech industry uh, keeps you up at night? Nothing keeps me up at night at work. I, I don't think work is worth losing sleep over. So I'll start with that. <laughs> but um, I'm not very bullish. Or no, maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic. I think when it comes to... Um, AI and removing the human from the equation. Um, I'm, I'm nervous about that future. Uh, it might be because I don't know it. I mean, I, no one really knows what it's going to be yet, but I'm not really in that world. But um, every time I've interacted with a company uh, where they're trying to push the human out of this picture, it's not a very good interaction. And I'm concerned that as that becomes more and more common, even though the technology will get better, I'm I'm concerned that the the nuance and the the understanding and the human warmth and the human empathy and 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 care for each other will be missing, and I'm not sure what that world's going to look like. So it doesn't keep me up at night because I nothing like that does, nor am I in that world. But as a as a citizen of that world, I'm a bit concerned about where that all might head. So I, I would say that's something that. 
I'm, I seem a bit pessimistic about. Um, but, you know, I guess we'll find out. So, you know, I, I think there's been some good reality checks, though. I think, you know, this artificial stuff is quite a bit harder than, than maybe it would, was made out to be a few years ago. And it does feel like, for example, autonomous driving was something that was like basically going to be here, should have been here by now as if, if you listen to, you know, the prognosticators and the predictions. And it's quite a bit, it's, you know, there's some things like, right, there's, there's um, uh, adaptive cruise control and, you know, you can kind of stay in your lane and there's assistance and stuff, but no one's letting the wheel go completely into getting from point A to point B reliably yet with humans on the road and in cars. Like it's, it's, it's quite a bit harder. And I think that in some ways that it's good that it's, I mean, everyone knows it's hard. It's good that it's taking longer because I think it shows that these, these problems are quite hard and humans are quite incredible. Our, our brains, I mean, everyone knows this, but like, it's a good reminder that our brains are extraordinarily capable and you kind of wonder like what, what's, what's the rush to, 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 to give up these computers that we have that are so good at so many things in our world and trade them for um, an artificial take on some of these things. You just kind of start to wonder. But anyway, I don't know. We'll see. I, you know, I might be just a, a Luddite around this sort of topic. And, and I don't know. I, I don't feel like I am, but I feel like these concerns are real. And I, and I, and I, I don't, you know, but we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out over time. I'm sure um, things will be figured out and um, we'll see what happens. And then we got to talking about informed consent. You ever see that big banner on a website that asks you to accept cookies? That's not companies want your permission. It's because there are privacy laws. And so I got his take on it. It's just really about informed consent. And um, I, I think when, when, when companies are afraid to give people the choice, the primary reason is because those companies know that most people would say no. And that's, that's unfortunate that that's where we're at, but yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating and it's of course, incredibly impressive in all the ways that like, it, you know, it feels like a, like magic in, in, in the future. And clearly like there's going to be more and more and more and more of this and it's going to get better and better and better and better. I just still wonder how humans, like what, what will be lost? I actually wonder if in like in the future, I'm putting that in air quotes, companies will have a competitive advantage actually if they have humans on the front line versus if they have bots or if they have some sort of AI thing. Like if that'll be a competitive advantage to actually have a, a warm body on the other side. Um, when right now it might be seen as the, the, the competitive advantage would be to have some, some AI, some tech that can, you know, replace a bunch of people and do a bunch of things. I, I'm not so sure long-term that'll be what people resonate with, but we'll see. I have no idea where it's going to go. I had a really fun time speaking with Jason, but one thing really stuck out at me. If these companies don't want to give people the choice because they know we're going to say no, are we going to just let that happen? I mean, are we just going to sit and idly watch? Or are we going to change the game? You've been listening to Tech Meets World. I'm Matt Almeida. This is the first ever episode, and I really appreciate you listening. 
as I said, I don't know where this is gonna take me, but um, I'm glad to have you along for the ride.